So the rest of us will uh, look at uh, Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 through 11. Uh, That text is uh, printed uh, in the bulletin and uh, also up on the screens behind me. Uh, As Kevin mentioned earlier, this is uh, an episode in the Old Testament uh, character uh, Joseph and his life. So uh, Genesis 45, verses 3 through 11, and then verse 15. This is the word of God. And we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So this is this is a profound text, profound story, uh, uh, a very challenging and a very difficult story. So let me say at the very outset this morning that what I don't want us to uh, miss about this text is um, we we could look at this text and try to uh, draw from it a primer about forgiveness. Okay. Um, the the problem with that is that, as we'll see as we dig into the text a little bit more, this text does not fit kind of the way in which we tend to think about the way forgiveness works. Okay. So we have to we have to kind of back up a little bit and kind of understand uh, what's what's going on here and how we have to understand it. So I want to take a few minutes this morning just to kind of get us caught up to where Joseph is at this place where his brothers are at this place, and then take a couple of minutes to look at where their family is at this place, and then we can begin to draw uh, some conclusions about that. Because it is a remarkable thing to think that these these boys, this family, uh, did this horrible, terrible thing to their brother, and here he is now with the power of life and death in so many ways over them uh, that he that he loves them, right? Um, so let's let's look a little bit at, at remembering J- Joseph's story. Remember, Joseph is the favorite of his father, which is kind of interesting about this family because this family plays favorites. Uh, Joseph's father, uh, uh, Jacob, was the favorite uh, of his mother, <laughs> and uh, uh, was just a uh, uh, and so it ripped his family apart. And now uh, Joseph's being favored is ripping his. Uh, a, a family apart. Remember, he got fancy clothes from his father. 
right, uh, to mark him off as the favorite. And Joseph, you know, kind of helps things along with his bold dreams. Remember, he goes to his brothers and says, fellas, last night I was dreaming and I dreamed that you all came around me along with dad and mom and bowed down to me. That always goes over really well, you know, with with older siblings in particular, right? You know, you're you're here to serve me, right? And so they're infuriated with him and they actually their intention is to kill him. And to go back and tell their dad, you know, something awful happened to him. They want to kill him. They're done with him, okay? And this is not, you know, an idle threat. I want to kill you. They they want to kill him. And so it only takes the uh, intervention of uh, uh, one of the older brothers to say, uh, we, we can't do that. And so instead they sell him. And so he's sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. Now, you know, just remember, so he's sold into slavery, he's sent to a place where he knows no one. He doesn't even know the language, right? Uh, and uh, is still a relatively young man, right? But God is merciful to him and gracious to him and, and gets him into a household where he rises in authority and serves this official in the Egyptian government and does so well uh, that he is elevated in the household until uh, the man's wife accuses him of sexual assault. And then he's thrown into prison. Now, prisons in ancient Egypt uh, were typically in sewers. No prison reform movement, no prison fellowship. You know, they, there's no no idea in, in ancient Egypt that, that prisoners need to be re- rehabilitated. You know, uh, you, you can draw your own conclusion that if they're in a sewer, what needs to happen to them, right? And so there he is unjustly imprisoned. After a period of time, uh, two of uh, Pharaoh's leading servants, uh, his baker and his cupbearer, uh, have dreams and they're troubled by those dreams. And Joseph interprets those dreams and they come true. And he tells the cupbearer who his dream means that he'll be restored to, to Pharaoh's service. He says, when you, when you get back in Pharaoh's court, I want you to be just. And ask Pharaoh to do justice for me so that uh, he can free me from this imprisonment that I'm in, that unjustly. But of course he forgets. And it's another two years in prison. Pharaoh goes to bed one night and he has that awful dream, you know, of, of the seven fat cows eaten, eaten by the seven skinny cows. Pretty gross. Uh, and then uh, the seven uh, good ears of corn blasted and done away with by the skinny ears of corn. The cupbearer remembers Joseph and says, hey, there was a guy that I was with in prison, and he interprets dreams. And so Pharaoh is so desperate to have anyone tell him what this means that he goes and he gets Joseph, and Joseph tells him, seven great years of harvest are coming, seven years of famine are coming. And so Pharaoh knows that, that what he must do about this is, is to organize some sort of way to garner as much of that food over the, the seven good years as they can, because not only will that feed his people, but the more food he has, the more leverage he will have over other nations. 
And so he raises Joseph to elevate him to essentially the, the second uh, uh, in command in all of Egypt. And Joseph begins the program to prepare for the famine. Next slide. We also need a little bit to remember about uh, Joseph's family background. Um, so, um, <laughs> so Joseph's father, Jacob, with the help of his grandmother, that uh, uh, defrauded and stole uh, the birthright and the blessing that was due his older brother. Okay. His maternal grandfather, uh, that his, his uh, uh, Jacob's uh, mom's uh, 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 dad, uh, defrauded Jacob. Remember, Jacob would work for him for seven years so he could get Rachel because she was easy on the eyes. And instead, he got Leah, who was hard on the eyes or weak in the eyes, depending on how you uh, translate it. And so he ended up working 14 years to get marriage, uh, to get uh, for his father-in-law for those marriages. And then Jacob, uh, studying the uh, science of genetics that was prevalent in the day back then in ancient uh, times, you can read this in the Bible. I'm not making this up. The thought was that if when female goats and sheep were bred, whatever they were looking at, that would be the cover color of their offspring. And, and Jacob had made a deal with his father-in-law that his father-in-law would get the solid-colored sheep and goats, and Jacob would take the spotted ones. So where they bred, where the uh, goats and the sheep bred, Joseph put pictures, put, put things in front of the female goats and sheep that were speckled, <laughs> believing that that would guarantee that he would get more sheep than his father-in-law. And God intervened and blessed them, and so... When Jacob finally leaves, he's got a flock full of speckled sheep and goats, right? There's my, one of the things um, uh, my brother and I have talked about is over the last year since our dad died is, you know, just how insane our family is. Um, my grandfather... My dad's dad spent a period of time in the late 30s and early 40s as a deputy sheriff in Granger County, Tennessee, where they lived. Um, and uh, during this period of time, though prohibition was over, there was still a, a, ver a, a very uh, fruitful and brisk trade in the manufacture and sale of illegal spirits. And so part of what my grandfather did was he would go out and find these illegal spirits, these production facilities, and bring them back to their house. And my dad, who was about nine or ten then, and his brother, who was two years older than the, him, would take axes and picks and poke holes in the stills and the copper and, and chop it up. Uh, and they would, uh, you know, to, to make it so that you couldn't use it, Right. Um, and they would leave the stuff out in the backyard until they could take it to the scrapyard. Well, not a backyard. They didn't have yards. That behind the cabin, they had this place where they left them. And they had the meanest dog you've ever seen, uh, really gross, nasty dog, terrible reputation. And so they thought at night they could go to bed and nobody would mess with the, the still parts because the dog was out there and would take care of it. And lo and behold, every time they would do this, they would get up in a day or two and the parts to the stills would be gone. 
So years later, it comes out that my dad's oldest brother, who was 16 years older than uh, him, would go there because the dog knew him, take those, pick those things up, put them on a wagon, carry them off, and sell them back to the people who were making the illegal spirits. Wait, it gets better. (laughs) We've since come to find out that we're pretty sure that our grandfather, who was the deputy sheriff, also received a kickback from that illicit behavior. So these are my people, (laughs) right? (laughs) This is where I come from, right? So, you know, we, 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 when we look at, at these characters that we're looking at here in this story, you know, we, we hear that great text, those great statements in the Old Testament about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of scoundrels. Scoundrels. Just scoundrels. And I'm not even telling you about all the really horrible things Joseph's brothers did in the intervening period of time while he's there. Horrible, unspeakable things. Literally unspeakable. We can't talk about it in this crowd. So as we come at this, this is the whole context that we're in here, right? This is, this is the whole kind of situation that, that Joseph comes from. This is the situation that he finds himself in. This is the, the, these, these men who present themselves to him as his brothers. You know, we, we can look at them and we can kind of try to deduce all sorts of things about what it is about that situation and that transaction and that relationship that drove Joseph to forgive them, not just to forgive them, but to be reconciled with them. So what you have to see is when Joseph does this, it's a remarkable thing. But I have to tell you, you know, I have searched this text over and the chapters preceding this over and over and over again to find a way that would make this seem like this is a reasonable uh, case for why you should forgive the people who sin against you. Now, Now, what we tend to do is we tend to think, we tend to set preconditions, right? What we tend to do here is we we think, well, I will forgive somebody if they ask for forgiveness. I I will forgive somebody if if they ask for forgiveness, and then I will reconcile with them if they continue to show fruits of that repentance. And you know what? That is a great thing. That is an awesome thing, and we should apply that every chance we get. The problem is in this text... The closest you come to these boys doing anything remarkably like that is the fact that they're distressed here when they realize, oh, no, that's Joseph. (laughs) Because they think he's dead. Maybe in the previous chapter, uh, Joseph puts some things in their bags and uh, 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 demands that they leave his his uh, his full brother, Benjamin, there. And Judah steps up and says, oh, if if we have to leave, if we have to leave the little boy here, my dad will die. Take me instead. Maybe, maybe that is, maybe that's that. Maybe that's. So from here on out, I I, I want to tell you that this sermon is aimed at uh, a very tiny group of people in the room. And that is the people who struggle to forgive. 
Now, some of you really are warm-hearted, soft-hearted, quick to forgive people. And then there are others of us who don't struggle with forgiveness because we don't ever forgive. (laughs) We nurse a grudge like it's our dearest, sweetest baby ever. Right? But again, I think what we, we... we have to do as we look at this text is not not approach it in that sense. Uh, because I, I think what, what I'd rather you think about today is think about what are the preconditions of what God might do in my heart and in my life to enable me to have a soft enough, a soft enough heart towards God and his goodness towards me to patiently endure the sins of others against me in the hope and the trust that through that, though I may be dead, God would raise me to life to serve those who have done me ill. Next slide. So it's hard for us to tell whether they're really repenting. It's hard for us to tell any of this. So, and, and the thing that is even more dramatic about this is, as he deals with them in the way that we tend to think about when I go to ask somebody for forgiveness, when, when I'm repenting, one of the questions I ask and one of the questions you ought to ask is, how can I make this up to you? What can I do to demonstrate to you, not, not to pay off my debt or anything like that, but how can I demonstrate to you that I recognize that I have done you wrong and here I am now to, to, to repay that in a sense. The problem is, and that is a great thing and you should do that, the problem is they have nothing to give him. <laughs> he holds all the cards. They're starving. They don't have anything to give him. He not only does he hold their lives by with the possibility that he could have them killed right there on the spot. But not only that, he could choose not to give them food and they could go back and slowly starve to death there in Israel. Right. So what could they give him? Yeah, challenging. So what I want us to do is to help us get at this this morning is, is to, do, to, to look at two things that I think must have happened, uh, did happen in Joseph's heart and life to enable him to approach the people who oppressed him, who, who sold him, who abused him, and, and to deal with them in the way in which he did. So there are two things that I think that has to happen. First, there's an internal look, the way we must look inside ourselves. And then secondly, there's a Godward look that will change kind of our orientation about this. So first, the internal look. Uh, this, is a, this is a quote from um, C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. And I think, I think it's a pretty profound thing. Now, we don't, we don't see a lot of this in here uh, in, 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 in this text about Joseph. But that doesn't matter because this is a good thing and we all ought to be doing this. <laughs> okay? So uh, for a long time, I used to think this a silly straw-splitting sp- distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? You know, you know uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. Hate, hate the sinner, hate the sin. Right? No. Hate, yeah. Uh, Hate the sin, love the sinner, right? That's, and by the way, if, if you can summarize something as profound as that 
in that sentence, it's probably dumb and stupid and, and not an accurate description of reality, right? So um, if you can put it on a bumper sticker, don't, all right? Uh, but years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. <laughs> However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was not the sort of man who did, uh, that I was the sort of man who did those things. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one, what one word, not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid. But it does want them to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. Being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping if it is any way possible that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. So as, as whatever else may be true of us, whatever else may be going on in, in our hearts and lives, when, when we come to this struggle of, of what to do about a situation like this, how do we react and how, how do we think about that? Well, the first place we have to go is to look at ourselves and understand who we are and understand that, uh, that though, and this is certainly in no way to, um, uh, to cast any kind of blame upon victims or anything like that, But you have to understand that we are all broken by sin. And there is never a situation that I will find myself in when I am in a conflict, when I am in a difficulty, where the gospel, the goodness of Jesus Christ for me does not cause me in some way to need to repent of something. And that doesn't mean that what I, I, I put myself in a situation where I, I needed to be, or, or I put myself in a situation where I put myself in the way to be abused, right? Not at all. But sin is so prevalent and we are all such mixed bags. There's not a pure soul in the room. I, I, I was thinking about this this week that, you know, I, I was racking my brain trying to think, when was the last time I ever did anything out of a pure motive? And you know what? I know the answer to that question. I've never done it. <laughs> ever. I was thinking about it just before, before I got up here and I was praying. I'm like, Lord, you really need to help me, you know, be clear. And because people told me that how great it was at nine o'clock. And I'm like, you know, I, 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 I tend to think I do better when it's fresh, when it's the second time around, it's stale. So you got to help me. And then I'm thinking, yeah, I want you to help me because I want people to tell me it was good. No, no, Steve, that's not right. (laughs) It's for God's glory and for his people's good. Well, if you get a little benefit out of that, what is, you know, all right, all right. So, so the truth is, and it's a dumb example, but the fact of the matter is, you know, my, one of the things that I have observed about myself and observed about other people that for the most of our lives and for most of the things that we do, we do what we want to do. Right? 
So I have to look at myself in that way first and foremost. And that doesn't minimize somebody else's sin against me. That doesn't change that in any way. And it doesn't make me responsible. These boys should not have done that. And it didn't matter if Joseph came out there and bragged to them about the dream. They should have never done this. They sinned and they are responsible for that sin. And yet somehow or other within me, I have to look at myself and I have to recognize that whether I'm afraid or, or whether I'm embittered or what, whatever it is, I have to find, ask God in his spirit to help me find something for which I can repent because if I don't, I grow hard and self-righteous. Even, even though I'm the one who's been sinned against. Next slide. We need to have a, a, a Godward look. And um, um, I, this week, uh, my friend John Calvin really helped me with this. He says, this is a remarkable passage in which we are taught that the right course of events is never so disturbed by the depravity and wickedness of men, but that God can direct them to a good end. That is so hard to believe, isn't it? Because the monstrosity of sin and depravity seems so great that it seems impossible that God could be that good. But worse yet, if that's true, then that means somehow or other, maybe the sinners, maybe the perpetrators get off the hook, right? But you see what, what's, what's happening here is something more profound than that. I mean, look at, look at what the, the text, look, look at how Joseph describes this, right? Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Right? And so as as we look at that, one of the things you have to see is something happened within Joseph over this period of time and over these period of years for him to be able to see that. Joseph was sold by his brethren for what reason? But because they wished by any means whatever to ruin and annihilate him. The same work is ascribed to God, right? Joseph said he sent him, but for a very different end. Namely, that in a time of famine, the family of Jacob might have an unexpected supply of food. Therefore, he, that is God, willed that Joseph should be as one dead for a short time in order that he might suddenly bring him forth from the grave as the preserver of life. What great news is that? But I'll tell you what makes it even better is that God might allow someone to be dead for a time and bring them to life so that they are the giver of life to the very people who killed them. Unbelievable. Scandalous. It makes me mad. How dare he do that? Right? Isn't that stunning? But you see, that's exactly the nature of what God does here. 
right? And so for whatever else may be true, whatever else may have happened to Joseph, whatever, whatever might, have, might have gone on in him, something profound happens in him so that he is able now to be able to be this person and to do these things because he sees the purpose of God in his suffering and in his pain and in the sins against him was so that the lives of these other people would be preserved. How does that happen? Next slide. This is what I think, and this is, this is all I got on this, uh, is that faith grounded and the love of God for us issues in peace and patience and ultimately kindness to those who have done us wrong. Patience, then, is not a quality that we can cultivate, an attitude that we can adopt, or a method we can employ. To be patient is nothing other than to have faith. Not a generic faith, an optimistic attitude, a faith that everything will work out. And again, that's another one of those bumper sticker deals. And frankly, if you're not in Christ today, everything, that promise is not true for you. But an absolute contentment in our status as children of God, the Father, through our union into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which we receive the Holy Spirit. Patience, then, is not thinking that good things come to those who wait, another bad one, but a confidence in the one whom we wait upon. Right? We're not entrusting ourselves to some sort of force like karma that these things kind of work out. We are entrusting ourselves to someone with a face, someone who looks at us, someone who sees us, someone who understands what it is like to be killed by your enemies and then to be raised from the dead to give to those enemies life. And those are the kind of people that we are. That, that is that Joseph in some way or other, the spirit of God must have worked in him some way or another for him to see beyond his years, beyond his generations into the very heart of God to understand who this God was. That the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was with him and was for him and would take the worst imaginable things that could happen to him and change the world. You see, not only does, is Joseph there feeding his family, but the very sustenance of life of the then known world depends on what happens there in Egypt. What a, what a powerful thing. And listen, I want to say today, I, I know that this is messy and I know this is hard and I know it's challenging. And I know that there are many of you today who are sitting here and you are gripping with all of your might, with your nails dug in, that you cannot in any way, there are people, institutions, family, friends, co-workers, that you are digging in today and you say, I will not. Not until they're down on the ground before me asking for, for me to forgive them. Well, you know, I'll pray that they do that. But what I will, but what I'll pray for more is that your heart would be soft enough 
if that ever happened because you see the goodness and the love and the tender mercy of your God to you, that you could even receive it. Because here's the bottom line, right? If he loves us, then we have everything. Even when you're in the sewer of an Egyptian prison, wrongly put there. You have everything, and nobody knows it, but you have everything. And though we lose everything, there is to lose in this world. If God loves you, if Jesus loves you, if you are hidden in him and his life, death, and resurrection today, you have everything. And I am here to tell you, listen, a day's coming for every person in this room drawing breath that you will lose everything in this world. You will. But what matters, what matters is that he loves you. And if he loves you, you have everything. That, whatever that is, that God works in the heart of a man, woman, or child, is the force that changes everything about us and everything about our world. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's use this prayer of confession based on the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. O oh Lord, our God who brought his people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and by Christ delivered us from sin, you have been faithful to keep all the promises of your covenant. But we, O oh Lord, have been a stiff-necked people who love unfaithfulness. We have loved other gods before you and become their servants. We have not worshipped you in spirit and in truth, and so we have mocked your glory. We have used your name in vain and profaned your reputation on earth. We have desecrated your Sabbath because we have not trusted you to give us rest. We have not honored our fathers and mothers and have proved ourselves rebels. We have hated our neighbors and murdered them in our hearts. We have made adulterers of ourselves 
in the lust of our eyes or in the deeds of our flesh. We have stolen honor and wealth and privileges that are not ours. We have lied and falsely accused, for we love gossip more than truth. We have coveted blessings which you wisely and righteously gave to others. O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have not kept your law. Believer, hear the good news. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.